Hello, and welcome to Mindful You at Naropa, a podcast presented by Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. I'm your host, David Devine, and it's a pleasure to welcome you. Joining the best of Eastern and Western educational traditions, Naropa is the birthplace of the modern mindfulness movement. Hello. Today, I'd like to welcome a very special guest to the podcast and also a very close dear friend of mine, Jim Jobson. He's also known as Buddha Bomb. Jim graduated from Naropa in 1978. He is also a skillful DJ, a music collector, and a radio host at KGNU. So welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, David. It's great uh, to be here. Yeah. How are you doing today? Oh, busy and crazy as always. Awesome. Dang, 1978, huh? You were here in the early years. Yeah. I actually started the very first summer of Naropa, 1974. Ugh. And I took classes and, you know, kind of worked my way through school. So I was able to complete enough credits to graduate okay. after four years. So I basically went mm. part-time to Naropa for four years. I had attended okay. uh, two years back east, you know, where I was a college football player. and Really? Uh, yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> well, then I took a lot of LSD and yeah. started hitchhiking around the country mm. and reading Be Here Now. And No, <laughs> amazingly enough, in part of my journeys, I hitchhiked through Boston and there was a Dharma <laughs> Arts Festival. And it was Ram Das, Bhagwan Das, Allen Ginsberg, wow. and Shogim Chungpa Rinpoche. And Rinpoche was the last... And there were a number of events, chanting Whoa. and poetry readings and singing and things. And then the last thing was Chogyam Chungpa. And it was mm. during that experience, that was in um, the fall of 1973. Okay, so... That, that's how I connected yeah. with the Dharma directly. I had been mm. searching for it after I'd done a lot of psychedelic drugs uh-huh. and was... You know, I read the Bible, the Bhagavad Gita, you know, Be yeah. Here Now kind of set me off to re- researching these other things. Yeah. And then I read yeah. the life story of Padmasambhava. And I also went to Nichiren Soshu, you know, Japanese Buddhist, that they chant the Nomyoho Renge Kyo. Okay. And I thought, if that's Buddhism, it seemed like uh, kind of materialistic or something to me. Huh. So I was very bummed out. That was in Portland, Oregon, but then... When I hitchhiked to Boston and I encountered the Dharma Arts Festival was happening that next weekend, amazingly. And then I attended all that and then I became a student. And then that next summer, you know, one of the things that happened, I became a a member of, it was called, this is before Shambhala, it was called Uh the the Boston Dharma Datu. Ooh, okay. And it was the organization was called Vajra Datu. And that was the Buddhist organization. And... I became a member of the Boston Dharma Datu and then went up to, it was called Tale of the Tiger, what's now Carmei Choling. And wow. that okay. was the center up in Barnett, Vermont. <laughs> so I got in, indoctrinated yeah. back east in the winter of 73, 74. But then during that, all of a sudden there was this talk hmm. of this college. Now, I had left uh-huh. college because 
I had decided the conventional world wasn't for me. Okay. I had been a serious student. Mm -hmm. I was planning to become a psychologist, a psychology okay. major. And, you know, I always did well in school and everything, and I was athletic. Mm -hmm. But then I just saw all these other dimensions, and I just also saw through, like, the hypocrisy of a, yeah. a lot of things in society. And yeah. I went on a journey and ended up at Naropa. That winter in Boston, I connected. I started med doing meditation practice every uh -huh. day. There were regular study groups. There were workshops. Sometimes Trungpa Rinpoche would come and he would do workshops in Boston and sometimes it'd be huh. at Tale of the Tiger. Okay. And so I started uh, learning about the Dharma. I was reading the books. Mm -hmm. Myth of Freedom was the, you know, the first one that came out and then cutting through later. Yeah. But during the spring of 74, started hearing about there was a Naropa Institute mm -hmm. was going to happen. And then there was this brochure. And it was all like Buddhism and poetry and psychology yeah. and yeah, yeah, all yeah. kinds of things that mm -hmm. I was interested in. So, of course, I had to go. So I went to the first summer of wow. Naropa. And it was, you know, an interesting time because <laughs> I still had long hair. And there was still a lot of, you know... Uh, I guess, hippies <laughs> around. Mm -hmm. Okay. But I had the experience when I went to Tale of the Tiger of most of the people, like the administrators, all had short hair, had cut their hair. Okay. And I hadn't gotten to that point yet because <laughs> I was still, had a lot of momentum for hitchhiking around, being a hippie. And mm -hmm. oh, there's a whole lot of stories that we don't have time to get into about mm -hmm. that. But anyway, it was not cool to be like a hippie anymore. There was an aggression of turning away from society. So he encouraged students to do meditation practice, but also to, you know, cut your hair, become a member of society, get a yeah. job and like and have, you know, sort of this basic sanity notion of just okay. have like a <laughs> I quote unquote normal life, cleaning up your kitchen and going mm -hmm. to work and doing a good job and meditating like that's all you need. You know, you didn't yeah. have to do this fight against society. You just kind of go along mm. with the energy. I don't know. That was kind of what I wow. got, got okay. out of it. So I, it took me until I took refuge that okay. summer to cut my hair. <laughs> <laughs> and, I didn't actually realize they were doing events outside of Boulder as a team, like Ram Das and Chongyom and Allen Ginsberg. And that's how you found them. And then you actually traveled to Boulder because you heard of that. There were several weekend events. They were called Dharma Arts Festivals. Mm -hmm. And there were at least a couple in Boston, and there might have been some other places. But yes, there was a whole weekend. Uh, Ram Dass had a whole presentation where there was chanting, and he, yeah. he talked. And I know Bhagwan Das did this whole chanting evening. Uh -huh. and Oh, and uh, Allen Ginsberg had this harmonium, and he used to uh -huh. sing with this harmonium, and there's recordings of it. So there's this weekend of activities, and there was an open house at the Dharma Dhatu, and I did some meditation, and I okay. talked to some of the people, and you know they told me like some things about what they called the Dharma. So I went over there, it was part <laughs> of the weekend, and I went to all of the events, you know, Allen Ginsberg's uh, singing event, and they had Bhagwan Das did this chanting, and I remember there were, you know, videos of avatars and things on the screen. Uh -huh. There were different activities all weekend, and then the very last event on Sunday night mm -hmm. was at Harvard, and it was Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche uh -huh. giving a talk, and he came out 
He was actually there on time for this one. <laughs> he came out and he sat down and he just sat there for a long time. Ooh. Yeah. And it was sort of like a John Cage moment. You know, okay. There was like the shuffling of people and people yeah. coughing. And then finally he started to speak and he said, oh. I'm not going to entertain you. <laughs> <laughs> he said, there's not going to be any chanting. <laughs> he said, we're not going to sing any songs. You know, huh. He kind of went into this thing, and then he s started to say how it's a very lonely journey mm. and how he's just one grain of sand, and there's, you know, endless numbers of grains of sand. And yeah. it, when he was speaking, it felt to me like this is the first person I'm hearing who's actually speaking the truth. Mm. And so he gave this talk and that's how he started and then at one point all of a sudden he might as well have turned the spotlight on me he said okay so you've been hitchhiking around the country doing lsd <laughs> trying a little bit of this and a little bit of that and it's true i had gone to you know the Hare krishna place and mm -hmm. i, I the, you know i tried that buddhist place and i kind of different things and he said but taking lsd is like driving a car to go next door it's better just to walk and mm -hmm. then you see what's on the landscape and you see the flowers and the different things. And, you know, <laughs> he, and I realized that he was my teacher. Oh, it was just a, a great talk. So cool. Oh, and then he, he kind of went on from there and he was saying that mm -hmm. instead of like tasting a little of this and tasting a little bit of that and, you know, spiritual shopping, yeah. you should find one path and just go with it. Hmm. And then he said, you know, you need to find a teacher. And some guy who had held some sign, a Jesus freak, I guess you could say, <laughs> jumped up and screamed, well, yeah, well, who was Jesus' teacher? And Rinpoche said, I was. <laughs> and the place just exploded. <laughs> Incredible applause. Ooh. Then obviously I went, I joined the Dharma Datu and... Uh -huh. I went to Tail of the Tiger, and I had this experience where just, it was only about two months after that, there was mm -hmm. a weekend, I think it was called Zen and Tantra, but there was a, a weekend seminar, and I was there, I participated, and I had just joined the Boston Dharma Datu. Okay. I'd paid the first month dues and everything. Yeah, yeah. And there was a meeting at Tail of the Tiger at some point mm -hmm. for the Boston Dharma Datu members. And I still had my long hair and beard. Mm -hmm. And I felt a little bit shunned during the weekend by yeah. some of the people. And I kind of got that vibe that, uh -huh. okay, it was cool to cut your hair, not cool to not cut your hair. But I was still I was holding on to yeah. that a little bit. So <laughs> this meeting came, and we were there for the meeting. And Rinpoche wasn't in the meeting. You know, he wasn't there. Everybody was there first. And there were about a dozen or so students in the Boston Dharma Datu who had attended this weekend workshop mm -hmm. up at Tale of the Tiger in Vermont. And Rinpoche walked in, and at that time, he hadn't trained us yet. This is the fall, actually it was about December, maybe January, but 1973, the untamable beings hadn't been tamed. <laughs> Nobody stood up. It wasn't, the yeah. protocol hadn't been established. It's and like that first experience with the Rinpoche in the room. <laughs> yeah, well, he really established that when the Karmapa came. And that's, yeah. And, uh, and then the protocols uh, all got it mm -hmm. um, established. But anyway, wow. he, he came in the room, and then he sat down, and he just sat down on a chair. And 
he looked at every person in the room and he looked at me <laughs> and he said, we have an interesting collection here. Nice. <laughs> I felt you like I, I, I had felt like <laughs> I was accepted and I didn't worry about it. I was accepted. Yeah. And then I cut my hair on my own later. Yeah. So. Oh, that's so awesome. So when you were going in Europa, what did you study? And what was the vibe like? Well, there was a program. I was a BA. I had only okay. I had to, uh, finished two years of college okay. at Dickinson College in Pennsylvania. And uh, <laughs> there was a program called Buddhist Psychology. So of all mm -hmm. the programs, yeah. there were several that were of interest. There was Buddhist mm -hmm. program too. Yeah. But I graduated in what was called Buddhist Studies. You know, there was a tradition in college to have a major and a minor. Uh -huh. My minor was beat poetry. So I took all of the classes that I could with, and oh my God, what a smorgasbord. Yeah. Allen Ginsberg, uh -huh. who was certainly the biggest one alive. He's because like the rock star, the beat poets. It was kind of funny and macabre. They, it was the Jack Kerouac school of disembodied poetic, yeah. but Allen Ginsberg was the head yeah. of the yeah. disembodied school. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, Ann Waldman was a major player. Ann Waldman's and, still in the game. Yeah, I know that she yeah. still is. <laughs> the famous one, William Burroughs. Yep. And I actually cleaned his uh, apartment at the university <laughs> townhouses. <laughs> nice. And I uh, got to meet him a little bit and attended his poetry readings and Man, things. And, and I took his classes. I took so classes cool. with all those guys. So with, mm -hmm. but with William Burroughs... Philip Whalen, they were two I really resonated with, yeah. especially Philip Whalen. He was a Zen poet. Okay. Dots and squiggles justify the air and space I occupy. Oh, that's so good. Says, wow. All I bought was all I needed, namely soap. Yeah, so I remember a couple of those things. And then William Burroughs was, mm. you know, the colonel beams at the crowd, <laughs> palmated, manicured, he wears a satisfied expression of one who has just sold a widow a fraudulent peach orchard. Mm. Okay, give us your Alan now. <laughs> Let's hear Alan. Oh, boy. Alan Ginsberg. I can't do Alan Ginsberg <laughs> because he was just an amazing individual, and uh -huh. I'm just really fortunate. He actually took the time. I mean, I took classes with him, mm -hmm. but he read through my poems and made comments, you know, wrote little comments yeah. on my poems, and then... I was involved in this poetry reading at Marpa House. I was a okay. resident of Marpa House, and I was reading this poem. Mm -hmm. And it was actually kind of this whole life story about how I was no longer a virgin. <laughs> okay. And Poetry worthy, you know. <laughs> Allen Ginsberg came in the room, uh. sat down across from me, <laughs> and was like egging me on. He was like... He's like, tell it, it to me. Yeah, yeah, and stuff like that. It was really incredible wow. that he did that. And I never, you know, really hung out with him or anything. It yeah. was a student-teacher relationship. But yeah, I yeah. just feel really fortunate to have had that. And also... That's so cool. I can't even remember all, all the poets' names. I remember there was this guy from this old band called The Fugs. Have you ever heard of those? Oh, man. I think it's Steven Taylor. And he still comes to the SWP. Okay. Yeah. Well, I remember there was a guy who was from the Fogs, and mm -hmm. uh, that was a group that I was aware of. I always liked unusual music. I okay. always loved music, as a matter of fact. Yeah. On my sixth birthday, 
was given a little record player and it could play 45s. And I remember oh, yeah. my first record. Uh-huh. What it was, was it? The soundtrack to Dumbo. Pink elephants on parade. I think it really influenced. That's what got it all started. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I've seen yeah. a few pink elephants since then. Just a few. Yeah. Uh huh. That's so cool. So, tell us a little bit about your journey after Naropa. So you're on this path. Well, you I, I find was out living, about the school. I was living at Marpa House, and I also, you know, came out of this culture, this American culture. I was mm -hmm. born in 1952, so this whole mm -hmm. 50s thing. And I was programmed to have a career and that all yeah. of the relatives have these careers and there's all... Yeah. So what do you do? Yeah, exactly. Insert career here. Exactly. So mm -hmm. I had that orientation and I did have this notion of being a psychologist. So okay. I graduated from Naropa. I yeah. had, a, had a BA in Buddhist psychology. You're doing the thing. And I was still living at Marpa House and I got a job at East High School in Denver, mm -hmm. working with emotional disorders. Okay. And it paid something Ooh. about, it was like three or $400 a week, which even <laughs> even wow. back then wasn't a lot of money. Uh -huh. totally. But it was enough I could sustain it at Marpa House, fortunately. Mm -hmm. And I would take this bus to Denver, and I did that after I graduated from Naropa. So I worked in the psychology field and then I went to the 1979 seminary, which was in Lake Louise, okay. near Calgary, up okay. in Canada. And it was a magical time, and I learned a lot, and mm -hmm. it was an incredible experience. And you know, I was really connecting with the Dharma and the Vajrayana on a deep level, and yeah. getting, you know, sort of on that level, so to speak, or having that opportunity and that experience after so many years of meditating and going to mm -hmm. classes and and then it was wasn't anything you would expect it was <laughs> just what it was uh-huh awesome. but Rinpoche said something that your life is going to change and some magical things are going to happen to you and when he said that in my mind i really couldn't continue making you know a few hundred dollars a month yeah and to really have a a successful career, financial mm -hmm. sustaining career in the psychology field, you need a master's and then a PhD. Yeah, lots of work. I was actually kind of, yeah. even though I enjoyed my time at Naropa, mm -hmm. I didn't want to keep going to school. I just wanted to live. I just wanted to work. I just okay. wanted to practice. I just wanted to yeah. make Get it happen. And I was because the academic world, you know, mm -hmm. it's how we really get jump started into the world. And I felt yeah. like, I had learned enough from that just in okay. for what I needed, and I just wanted to get out into the world. So yeah. I was living at Marpa House, taking this bus to the East High School in Denver every day. And there was a, a guy at Marpa House who was a computer programmer. And I talked to him about it, and I was interested. I asked questions, mm -hmm. and he told me some things, but then he was like, I don't know if you'd really like it. And... I said, well, I think I would like it. So I bought a book and I read it and I started doing a little bit of research. So uh -huh. I started asking him questions. And then I convinced him to get me a, a job interview mm -hmm. at the place where he worked. And I went to the place and, you know, I have a resume. I'm a graduate of Naropa. Uh -huh. And I have the last, whatever it was, eight months 
of working with emotional disorders at East High School. Okay. And I'm coming into a software company asking for a job as a programmer. You know, I talked to the guy who interviewed me, and I, you know, I told him, I, look, I read a few books, I have these ideas, I, you know, I've always been good at math, I think I, I can be good at programming, I just mm -hmm. want to get an opportunity and start as a trainee. He was, like, kind of skeptical, and he said, well, you know, we're busy here, and, like, you know, he said, if you had a year experience, we could do it, and I said, look, I said, I love to play chess, and I can play chess blindfold. He said, what do you mean? I said, I can turn my back to the chessboard and just play the game in my mind. And he said, mm. okay, if you can beat me that way, I will hire Ooh. you. So I turned around and we played a game of chess. Blind, I played blindfold. You checkmate him? Yeah. Awesome. Traditionally, when you do blindfold chess or you do what's mm -hmm. called simul, simultaneous, you play white. White starts in chess. And that day we did the old notation. Now you would say <clears throat> D4. In those days, you said pawn to queen four. And then we played mm -hmm. the game, and fortunately, I was able to do it. So I got wow. hired. So I became a trainee on this okay. company, and I learned computer programming. And then I had a whole career. I ended up, I started um, my own software company called Rigdon Incorporated. And that was during that time when I was starting the company. Mm -hmm. Trunk Rinpoche passed away. Okay. And I felt his blessings, and I started this company called Rigdon, and it ran for 30 years, and that was my wow. primary vocation. Okay. And, you know, I was just was very good at developing software and yeah. computer programming, and I also had to learn how to sell and market the product. And yeah. I, I developed products from scratch. The product I created was a mail-order catalog, order processing, inventory control, okay. accounting database marketing, sales analysis mechanism. Uh -huh. It was all this big, large database. And okay. uh, mail order catalogs were a big thing in the 80s and yeah. 90s especially. Yeah. But then the internet came over and mm -hmm. online, well, it's just a different channel. Yeah. So the catalog companies, many of them still, by the way, print and sell, send out catalogs and people mm -hmm. who order from them, instead of calling the operator, some of them still do, and they still have operators, but most of them order online, mm -hmm. but they use the catalog as a reference point. Yeah. So they still yeah. actually use the catalogs. So anyway, I had this whole <laughs> uh, career for 30 years, and I'm, nice. I'm still in, in the software development. Okay. I didn't actually didn't know that. That was like the only part I didn't know about you, because I know the early Naropa zone, and then I know you like well, kind of now-ish. And then obviously, you know, we're connected through my activities in the music industry. Yeah, that's what I like. And that's been a major part of my uh -huh. life as well. But since I graduated from Naropa, I thought I should say, like, how did I sustain myself throughout that yeah, time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, what did you actually do? <laughs> yeah, and I still, for me, music's not about money. And mm -hmm. I... Sometimes there's certain events if they're collecting money and making a profit. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't have an overabundance of money, so I don't mind yeah. getting a little bit. But I also don't play for money, and I always play when I'm asked to play, whether I get yeah. paid or not. Yeah, and that's one thing I've always enjoyed about you is like your passion for music and your passion for DJing is far beyond the average person. You you were showing me like some of your music collection. You invited me to your studio. And it's just like walls and walls of records and CDs and just like digital music. And 
it's so amazing to see that. I've always loved music. Like I said, it started with that Dumbo album. I used to <laughs> love that. And then, Mine was I, Peter Pan, so I, I feel you. <laughs> but, but, you know, then I, I became a hippie, and guess what? I, oh, and I, also my father was a managing editor of the Asbury Park Press. So okay. I would get first row tickets to the rock concerts. I saw wow. The Doors. What? Stop. Yeah. <laughs> the Doors, uh, Vanilla Fudge. Led Zeppelin, oh Iron gosh. Butterfly, Chicago. In the Garden of Eden. Yeah. In the Garden of Eden. Yeah, I saw them twice. Actually, they were with Rhinoceros once. I know Led Zeppelin was with Chicago once. And Chicago, Wow. their Jeez. first album had just come out. Nobody had even heard of them. Okay. I, I, nobody, we had never heard their music. Okay. We saw them live, you know, with that blaring, like, it, it, was, <laughs> it was incredible. And then Led Zeppelin. We also saw Led Zeppelin um, and Joe Cocker opened for them. Jeez. And it was during Woodstock, and they were on their way to Woodstock. Mm-hmm. It was that same weekend, and they were talking about You're it. You're making me jealous. So, I would love to see Led Zeppelin. Yeah. Man, that's so cool. So how did you get to becoming where you're at now? Like, Tell us what you do now, because um, when well, I say KGNU, most people are not going to know well, what that means. Why don't I start by telling you how it that all began. Please. I, I did have an appreciation of music. And I, okay. you know, I was in college, I started getting stoned. And, you know, I had a lot of The Who, and I, yeah. I was very much in Oh, I saw Emerson, Lake, and Palmer live too. That was wow. incredible. <laughs> okay. So, jump forward. I've graduated from Naropa. I have a career in uh, software development. I worked mm-hmm. for software companies from 1979 to 1987 and then Trungpa Rinpoche died April 4th 1987 Mm -hmm. and that was when I started my company okay Um, I actually incorporated it on May 19th which was Pari Nirvana Mm -hmm. and I opened doors on June 1st 1987 and operated for 30 years wow so it was somewhere I would say it was in the early 90s. Okay, I remember. Mm-hmm. I was doing prostrations every night. And to, to do nundro, mm-hmm. you know, you do 100,000 of four different types of practices. Yeah. And prostrations are often the most difficult for people because mm-hmm. it involves uh, an actual physical of doing one yeah. prostration. And you do a mala's worth, which is actually 108, but you only get credit for Hundred, mm. so you have to do it. You, you basically you do a thousand malas, and yeah, they call uh, that a boom, right? If you do a hundred thousand Omani Palme homes, they call it a boom. Okay, I'm That's not what sure. I've heard. Okay, well, I'm not familiar with that term. Okay, in any case, I had gone through a period of not really practicing, mm-hmm. and I started to practice again, and it was by auspicious coincidence. I kind of slammed into a wall psychologically, drinking and all kinds of stuff. And I just stopped, started practicing again. Mm-hmm. And a month later, I took an airplane trip to Boston. Okay. And on the plane, I met a Tibetan Lama was on the plane. Oh, it's awesome. It was Khandro Rinpoche, oh. or the venerable Khandro Rinpoche, a okay. woman teacher, one of the highest ranking Tibetan females yeah. in existence. You know, oh. she's now the head of 
the Minjuling Monastery mm-hmm. and uh, Nyingma, but she's you know Nyingma Kagyu, and I became her student mm-hmm. for years. So I continued and I finished Nendro. Okay, and then I did a lot of studies with her, but it was during that time where I was doing prostrations and. I played football, like I said, and my knees mm. got really banged up in football. Yeah. So doing prostrations was actually a little bit of a challenge, and I found that I had to just do it purely on my hands all the way and, and not touch my knees. And, okay. and it was a little bit mm. more athletic. It's an athletic it's like, way to do it. It's almost it. like I, yoga. <laughs> yeah, I, I still do it, do it that way. Huh. And the most I could do, and, and I was, you know, got into shape doing it, but... <laughs> It would hurt my knees if I did more than 300. There were a couple times where okay. I, on a Saturday or Sunday, I did like 600. Feeling it, yeah. And, well, it, it injured my knees. Yeah. And then I wouldn't be able to do it for a few days. Okay. So I realized the consistency. So I got into a pattern where I could do 300, mm-hmm. and it was good for my health, and it didn't harm my knees so mm-hmm. much. Nice. So I'd do 300 every night, mm-hmm. and I would do it after dinner from okay. about 9 p.m. till midnight. Mm-hmm. And then, wow, so it's like a hundred per hour. Well, I would do some practices before, but I okay. it would sometimes take two, two and a half, but it would take up okay, to three you hours. Okay, yeah, block of time. Yeah. And then midnight, you know, I had the software company, and I always had work to do, mm-hmm. so I would do software development and follow through on things. Okay. It was this was before email. Wait, what? There was a before email? Yeah. <laughs> and I was young. <laughs> we didn't even have artificial oh, yeah. intelligence. Snail mail. Yeah. I used to turn on the radio and I used to listen to KG&U. And there was this mm. one late night GJ mm-hmm. who used to play techno music. And so I was doing this practice, turned on the radio one night, and there was just music playing. And I just heard it on different levels. Like it... Yeah. And I called him up. And this was the first time I called him. I ended up calling him a lot after that. <laughs> I called him up. His name was Chris. I said, Chris, what's that playing? He said, that's techno, man. And I said, what's techno? And he gave me a rundown. And he said, oh, cool. He said, oh, well, go to the record store. And there's a group called The Orb. And they're pretty interesting. And they've got this ambient thing. And then there's Orbital. And they're kind of like this, you know. And he told me a little bit about uh-huh. these different genres and so i did i went to the record store the next day and then i would ask them Uh well who else is like this and then i started and and in those days they didn't have an electronic section it was just all in the rock you know interspersed with rock music Mm -hmm. so i started collecting electronic music this is all on vinyl too right no it's mostly on cds Oh, this is CDs, okay. Yeah, no. And I wasn't a DJ. I hadn't been introduced to it. I just started collecting electronic music and mm-hmm. playing it. Yeah. This is in the early 90s. I wasn't going to raise or anything. I just loved mm-hmm. the music. And yep. so and I, found, I learned that more and more. And, you know, I started hearing Psytrance early and stuff. You do play a lot of Psytrance. You play some good Psytrance. Well, I have that influence. And yeah. so... My software company was happening. I was developing, you know, I was marketing the software. Mm-hmm. I sold the system to companies in South America and Australia. And I went on a business trip to Australia. Mm-hmm. Now, this is get later. This is 1998. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I'm just marketing, installing, and 
making my product work in these different countries. And so I'm in Australia installing a system and I would go out at night and there was bars and I would hear the the kids driving around in like the, around the main uh-huh. streets. They uh-huh. they do that in Australia just like they do in America. Yeah, yeah. And in America they're listening to rock music. Well there they were listening to techno. Okay. So I found like that when I would travel international that I would nice. collect techno music. So anyway, I come back this Saturday after I get back from Australia. We have a company dinner. I arrange to drive it home so I can smoke a doob after. And I'm driving home and I turn on KGNU and it's playing what I now know as Psytrance. Mm-hmm. Okay. Know, I mean, it was Psytrance. <laughs> yeah. And I called the radio station and said, this is great. What is it? And they said, is this and that? And I said, hey, man, I love electronic music. I've been collecting electronic music for many years. And I was mm-hmm. just in Australia and... You know, I've told him a little bit, and the guy said, well, that sounds really interesting. Why don't you bring some of the music you like down and be a guest on our show next month? Oh, that's so cool. So nice. I, I had actually been listening to KGNU. That's why I started collecting yeah. electronic music. But now I actually was a guest on KGNU. Uh-huh. And then I just got involved from there, and that was 20 years ago this month. It was actually... The date I was a guest was January 9th, 1999. Wow. That just passed yeah. 20 years ago. Look at that. Yeah. So now I'm on my second, third decade starting. So that was 20 <laughs> years ago. And then auspiciously, then uh, last Monday on, um, let's see, January, what was it? January 13th, I think. Yeah, I was voted on the board of directors of KGNU Radio. Okay. So I've been involved for 20 years, and I'm involved in the show that I was a guest on. was called Electronic Air. So it's a two-hour electronic music show from 9 to 11 p.m. every Saturday. Okay. And I'm still uh, on that rotation. And mm-hmm. E23, mm-hmm. who is the guy who answered the phone, is still on the rotation. Wow. And then I host Under the Floorboards, which is an experimental Obscure, strange, different noise, sound. Okay. Things you don't. When's expect. that one on? Eleven p.m. till midnight every okay. Saturday. So it's right after Electronic Air, and then I also host a late night show. And you've mm-hmm. been a guest on that show. Yeah. And that's called Sleepless Nights. Sleepless Nights. And that's nights. midnight to three. Mm-hmm. And I'm usually on Thursday nights, which actually transform into Friday mornings. Yeah. So I do like about three of those a month, and then at least one Electronic Air. And one under the floorboards, and then sometimes I cover yeah. and do some extra shows as yeah. well. And Sleepless Nights is a variety show. So Electronic Air is yeah. all electronic music. Okay. Under the floorboards, all strange and different music. Uh-huh. And then Sleepless Nights is any kind of music. So yeah. I, I do have producers and DJs like you. Yeah. And poets and singer-songwriters. Uh-huh. And I had a bagpipe player once. Ooh. Yeah, played <laughs> bagpipes in the KG. Oh, man. That's crazy. Yeah, it it feels really fun to like kind of round it off and have you on my podcast because you've had me on your radio show. And that was like a really fun experience. You were the first radio show I've ever been on. And the first time I've ever like kind of been on a mic in front of, you know, an audience that is behind radio, something to listen to. Well, radio is interesting because... uh There's always somebody listening, but you don't know who. You have no idea. Yeah. And, you know, you can see, you can see how many 
computers are connected on the internet okay. to the URL, but you don't know who's listening on AM and huh. FM. Okay. KGNU has afterfm.com and the shows are archived because some people say, well, I can't listen to your shows because I can't stay past midnight. I say, oh, no, you can listen. So they can go to the website and just listen After to FM it. and you can look up either Buddha Bomb or you can look up the show by dates and stuff like okay. that. You know. Have you DJed on your own show? I mean, like actually DJ because I know oh, you, I you put on the music. Well, but... Electronic Air, I usually bring my laptop and mix with the MIDI controller and okay. you know, beat match and everything. Yeah. On, hey, you're hip, man. You got it. On the experimental <laughs> show, I usually I collect a lot of things. I still I'm a dinosaur. I still buy music and I buy CDs still. And okay. I like and it's easy to play CDs on the radio so and with the experimental music sometimes i'll experiment and play two or three of them at the same times but you're not really (laughs) you're not beat matching it and yeah you know mixing it in the way that we do at dance parties Uh so i don't usually play that kind of music okay on but but i on electronic errors i'm it's saturday night 9 to 11 people are going out and partying so i like Mm -hmm. to get the party started is what i say so i usually play a some a lot of fun dance sets like you've heard me play more yeah more than a few times yeah you have like a very tribal world bass beat psytrancey well, eclectic electronic feel. Yeah. Well, okay. On the radio, <laughs> you can't really play the same kind of music. You can't just play like house. I can't just play like house music, even though I mm-hmm. sometimes play house music. Yeah. So even though I play mostly electronic music on the radio, mm-hmm. I play many different genres. And so I'm used to that. So first of all, I'm used to genre shifting from mm-hmm. the radio of kind of keeping it interesting. And you can't. You know, sometimes I'll have a guest who will play, like, do a house set or something for okay. an hour, and that's cool. And that yeah. gives people, like, a real taste of what it is, mm-hmm. a little different dimension. But by and large, you want to mix it up. So I have that kind of background of changing the music. And then the primary DJ experience I've had over the last decade is in the ecstatic dance world. Mm-hmm. So I play in Rhythm Sanctuary, which mm-hmm. was originally called Gypsy Nation. Oh, I didn't know and, that. Okay. Shout out to Ava. Uh, yes. Holds that together. And also Shannon, who was the boulder. Ah, nice. The okay. boulder rhythm sanctuary. <laughs> but there was a whole stories about how ecstatic dance started. And it seems to have started in Hawaii. Hawaii. Yeah, mm-hmm. and Sunday Five morning, rhythms. Sunday morning ecstatic dance. Yep. So that seems clear. But... There's ecstatic dances all over the place. Mm-hmm. I met somebody at a a potluck last week who's from Portland, Oregon. Mm. Somebody told him I was a DJ and I did ecstatic okay. dance. And he was asking me about a, the local ecstatic dance scene. And I was telling him about the different ecstatic dances. I also do, uh-huh. you know, the Movement Wednesday, which is now at Valley Soul. Yeah, I do the Wednesdays. And we also do uh, Movement on during the summer, we get to DJ the band shell. So me and you get to do that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's true. There's a well, the number of things. Shell. Well, in Boulder, there's a number of things. But anyway, he told me that uh-huh. there's like a different ecstatic dance just about every day now in Portland, Oregon. So it's it's Sounds happening right. mm-hmm. all over. Yeah. So I've played many ecstatic dances. And the ecstatic dance, you generally start out more chill and you build it up slowly, mm-hmm. not abruptly, and you make it compelling and you get into a trance state and you don't really do so much 
songs with a lot of lyrics mm-hmm. so much. It's more like yeah. deeper, like it's actually modern day shamanism because what mm. you're doing when when I'm DJing an ecstatic dance, I'm facilitating the participants going into a trance state. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it has to do with the repetitive beats. Now we do mm-hmm. start out with a more down tempo or mid tempo yeah. beat and we'll build the BPMs up and mm-hmm. I will play different forms of music and it will be, you know, more ambient, side chill, down tempo, and maybe a little more up tempo, get more mm-hmm. like glitch hop and yeah. then I'll get into <laughs> the heavier beats because I feel like, okay, now people are ready to get uh-huh. into a deeper experience and I'll yeah. start playing like real tribal and I do yeah. put a lot of world flavors mm-hmm. into it throughout. And then not always, it depends on the feeling, but if I feel that the participants are resonating mm-hmm. with the heavier beats, I'll go into side trance, which is yeah. traditionally 140, 145 BPMs. Uh-huh. Now, some of it now is produced much faster, but I like to keep it to mm-hmm. 145 at most yeah. at an ecstatic dance and build it up to really a crescendo and then bring it back in mm-hmm. to more of the down tempo is kind of like yeah. a, it's just something that we really work with and yeah. for the ecstatic dance experience I spend the most time preparing the DJ sets because it's a curve that I understand and then what I do is I have tracks lined up, but then I have alternate tracks depending on the, mm-hmm. how it feels. So you're and, reading the vibe in each moment. Yeah. Well, sometimes and I'm just playing and I just realize this is what they need to hear. And sometimes mm-hmm. it is something totally different. And, you know, it yeah. might be uh, there was one I had recently where it was when I played a little bit of the harder music. Okay. Much more joy <laughs> happened that I realized I could introduce just a little bit more yeah. than I had planned. Oh, yeah. And things like that. So, yeah. you know, I make adjustments based on... So there's an improv component mm-hmm. to it, a lot of preparation, and then you've got just a couple hours to make yeah. it happen. Yeah, yeah. But people are there from beginning to end, yep. and they report. There's uh, usually a circle at the end mm-hmm. where people can share their experiences mm-hmm. of the ecstatic dance. Yeah. Yeah, and just so people know that are out there that don't know what a BPM is, it's beats per minute. So every song that you listen to has a tempo, and that tempo, according to the clock, will will every time you hear the the beginning of a kick drum on the first beat, that was will create your beats per minute. And so like when when Buddha Bomb's talking about like what number of BPM one forty, that's a very like dubstepy heavy bass kind of reggae even zone so there's like styles that live within 100 bpm 120 there's houses music is in the musicians know when you hear a style of music you can almost guess the bpms and all that fun stuff and ecstatic dance too is it's not something you would see in a bar it's very intentional music people are having a good time there's really no talking on the dance floor they don't want to interrupt the dancing experience it's self-expression so you can let loose and do your thing and it's super fun to be a dj in an ecstatic dance zone it's because of how you were saying you get to manipulate the vibe and just kind of take them on a journey exactly it is a journey and they're there for the whole experience so it's like you know you're doing a painting so you want to see the whole painting yep 
And by and large, most of the people are there for the <laughs> entire time, every uh -huh. time, and they're there for the whole experience. So you can really just start in a way where you kind of just mm. can, you know, kind of get them to resonate with you and yeah. get... Get them to trust you is yeah. something I found that's very important. Yeah. Is to get yeah. the audience. Then you can start to read them, and then you can tell mm -hmm. by either they're dancing with alacrity or they're maybe don't seem quite so interested of how to change it up or, you know, you've, you detect when things aren't working. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's so fun talking to you about all this. Our, actually, our time is up at the moment, but before we go, I just wanted to – have you tell where people can listen to you because you are on the radio pretty often you work for kgnu and just so people know how to reach you because yeah. we have a lot of listeners that like might want to tune in but aren't in colorado well my website is buddhabomb.net and com buddha b-u-d-d-h-a bomb b-o-m-b mm-hmm People say, why is the name Buddha Bomb? Well, that's an, another story we don't have time for now. <laughs> but I'll just leave it with that. Uh, okay. There's a chant, Huda Bomb, Buddha Bomb. Huda Bomb, Buddha Bomb. Okay, so, look at that. So I like it. And then, but com, and okay. then that has an audio page, and that's linked to my SoundCloud account. Okay. And then I have a SoundCloud account, and I do have a, a Buddha Bomb and a Buddha hyphen bomb, and the difference is the Buddha Bomb is I have some original works on there, and the Ooh, Buddha okay. hyphen bomb is I have the radio shows and things like that. Okay. But I have on the an audio page on BuddhaBomb.com. If you go to that audio page, mm -hmm. it's linked up, and you can listen to the SoundCloud okay. tracks from there of the Buddha hyphen bomb. Of and it's got a there's about a hundred tracks now. The, uh, you, the radio show you were on is one of them. And yeah, also, yeah. I had Amani Friend as a guest of mm -hmm. Desert, Desert Dwellers, Dwellers and Liquid Bloom. Yep. I, I also was able to interview Opio at Arise, and mm -hmm. I did hey. a show. That show's on there, there We went well. to Opio together like two weeks ago. That's, That's right. <laughs> I was literally like asking you to be on my podcast while Opio's dropping bass music and in front of us and here we are yeah and that was you told me you interviewed bass nectar too in the early days bass nectar was on sleepless nights and yeah. electronic air back in the day and i have them Legend. on a, a cd somewhere <laughs> that i got to go through i have a vast yeah. collection and i'm gonna it's in buddhism there's something called terma which are, means it's discovered text so i've got this terma so i'm gonna have to discover some of these okay these things Okay. Wow. Man, there's so much to be said, but our time is up. But I just want to take a moment to appreciate you as the person who you are and for sharing your stories and just being like how I see it, a local legend, you know, like when people hear Buddha Bombs playing an ecstatic dance, people just get so excited about you and your love and passion for music has allowed these young kids to experience this ecstatic dance in such a way that is therapeutic. You know, dance is extremely therapeutic and it's just so amazing to feel your passion and you're just so eclectic. You drop fat bass and you, people are just looking at you like, damn, this guy's like doing it right now. And it's it's just such a pleasure to be around your experience. And Well, you know what? My, <laughs> my main formula for DJing is... I play the music that I absolutely love. And I'm, I'm just kind of betting that since I love it so much, 
probably some other people are going to like it as well. It shows. And like you said, you don't even take money. You're just down for the cause. You just oh, like yeah. to drop base. Well, I made that decision a long time ago that not to and, – and there's nothing wrong with it. And some people who produce music and they mm-hmm. need to do that full time yeah. and I support them. So mm-hmm. It's wonderful. Like Opio, he put out a <laughs> shout out after the show you and I attended that was sold out and said, thank you so much. I know I appreciate so much. You people come and see me every yeah. time you spend your hard-earned yeah. money and come out. And mm-hmm. he, he, there's a lot of appreciation. Yeah. So show love to all those artists. They're working hard out there, people. They yeah. are. Well, they love to come to, come to Colorado because people actually sell out the shows. Colorado loves sell. their bass music. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You're right. We could we could talk about this forever. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks, David. Yeah. I appreciate being gonna, on the show. So I'd like to thank our special guest, Buddha Bomb, also Jim Jobson. He is a Naropa alum graduating in 1978, and he's also just – a really good friend of mine, an eclectic music collector, skillful DJ, and he's also a host on a couple radio shows on KGNU. So thanks again for speaking with me. Thank you, David. On behalf of the Naropa community, thank you for listening to Mindful You, the official podcast of Naropa University. Check us out at www.naropa.edu or follow us on social media for more updates.